0: this is a word a podcast from slate i'm your host jason johnson for many americans green book is the title of a feel-good movie about a racist turned white savior which won the oscar a few years ago but in reality the green book was a road map to help african americans travel through a hostile nation without getting killed
1: it was a nationwide guide to help black travelers find places to receive welcoming services as well as safe harbors when they were on the roads of America.
0: The true story of the Green Book, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss.
0: Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. For many Americans, especially white folks, The Green Book is a movie that starred Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen, which won the Best Picture Oscar in 2019. My point is,
1: we'll be gone for eight straight weeks, no breaks, right up until Christmas. You're quite sure you can leave your family for that long? Depends Um, where you're paying. $100 a week plus room and board. Hmm. But let me be crystal clear. I'm not just hiring a chauffeur. I need someone who can handle my itinerary, be a personal
0: assistant. I need a valet. I need someone who can launder my clothes and shine my shoes. Good luck, Doc. It was one of those movies where a gifted, genius-level black person strikes up an unlikely friendship with an ignorant white bigot. But in real life, The Green Book, formerly known as the Negro Motorist Green Book, was a guide for African-American travelers trying to navigate through the hostile territory of the Jim Crow South, saving as much as they could of their dignity and their safety. Now there's a new book that shares the real history of the Green Book. It's called Driving the Green Book, A Road Trip Through Living History of Black Resistance. The author is writer and educator Alvin Hall, and he joins us now. Alvin Hall, welcome to A Word. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Jason. For people who only know about the Green Book through the movie, Explain what it is and, like, a little bit of history behind it.
1: First of all, the movie only used the Green Book really in its title, and it only showed up at three or four places in the movie. And the feel-good feeling that people took away from the movie really has nothing to do with the actual publication. It was created by Victor and Alma Green, who lived in Harlem, and it was published from 1936 to 1967, and it was a nationwide guide to help Black travelers find places to receive welcoming services as well as safe harbors when they were on the roads of America. It started out focused mostly on New England because that's what Victor and his friends knew. But by 1938, it began to spread across America, eventually including Canada, the Caribbean, and a small part of Europe.
0: One of the things that I think a lot of people still hold on to is this idea that, oh, the South was really, really bad. But hey, once you got north of D.C., everything was fantastic. Talk a little bit about what the Green Book did for travelers who were maybe going north of D.C. What kinds of things were people being told about Cleveland or Chicago or Philadelphia or Pittsburgh? You know, how did the Green Book also inform black travel life uh, above the Mason-Dixon line?
1: Most people think that the Green Book was needed for the Jim Crow South, but it was actually needed for the North as well, where prejudice was equally deep, there's a book written by James Lowen, which is called Sundown Towns. And these are towns in which Black people had to be out of the city limits as the sun went down. If you were in those towns after sundown, you were in trouble. The majority of those towns were in the North, not the South. The difference between the North and the South was that prejudice and racism were much more in your face in the South. In the North, it was much more subtle. So you had to have a green book to negotiate in cities like Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. And as you went West, it was the same case. You had to know where you could go for safe harbor. One of the talks I gave a couple of months ago was to the Springfield Historical Society. And they were talking about Route 66. You know, we always think of that Nat King Cole song, You Get Your Kicks on Route 66. And every time I hear that song now, I always want to add, unless you're Black, you had to drive long distances between places where you could buy gas, even rest. So traveling across the North or the West was equally problematic to the South. Just more subtle.
0: The other question, and, and this is a practical one about the Green Book itself. So it was a guide, but was it annual? Was it monthly? How was the Green Book updated and when did they decide, hey, it's time to you know, put on our armor and go down there and update these sorts of things? The Green Book was an annual
1: publication. It came out every April or May, just in time for the summer travel season, and it was the size uh, of a, a small magazine so that you could put it in your car's glove compartment and pull it out as you needed it. Victor Hugo Green worked in Hackensack, New Jersey, and he was a postman. And there were two postman union: one for Black postmen and one for white postman. Victor used his connections in both of those to get the local postman to give him the names of places to be included in the Green Book. And so that was one of the ways that he started out. Over time, as the travel guide grew and became more successful, Victor had agents in these states who would drive around and look at the places and check them out. So as you look through the Green Book, it was really a recording of the history especially among small businesses in many of these local towns. So as one would go out of business for whatever reason, another one might replace it. And so you use the green book to see what was new and what was still functioning in those towns. It's really quite amazing. When I look back at going through the Green Book year after year, edition after edition, and to see what businesses managed to last, that was the amazing point. So in Birmingham, Alabama, you had the legendary A.G. Gaston Motel, which was known for its restaurant, and it's where Martin Luther King and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth would meet in room 30 called the War Room and plan some of the activities that they did in Birmingham. You had the Ben Moore Hotel in Montgomery, which was located at the high point there with a restaurant that allowed you views over the city. You had hotels in Detroit, in New Orleans. Some of them still exist, but now they're condominiums or they're Section 8 housing or they're old age homes. So some of these buildings still exist, but to drive down those streets in those cities, the streets that were the heart of the Black Business District, and to see what's there now, I encourage everybody to do it. Because with Even a facsimile of the Green Book in your hand, you get a sense of the vibrancy was there, but also what was lost.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the real history of the Green Book. This is Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at aword@slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the real story of the Green Book. With journalist Alvin Hall. Now, a lot of people hadn't heard of The Green Book uh, until the movie. You didn't really learn about The Green Book until around 2015. So what was your introduction to it, and why has it become this sort of all-consuming intellectual and, and cultural journey for you? I learned about The Green
1: Book when I was flying to London, when I was working for the BBC. And when I fly, I typically buy magazines, and I was thumbing through this magazine, and I saw this notation about the Negro Motorist Green Book in an article about travel. And I thought, I don't know anything about this publication. Why not? So I said that when I came back to New York City, I would actually go to the Schomburg and look it up. And there I found that the Schomburg had the largest collection in any public institution in America. And I became obsessed. Of course, the first place I looked, Jason, was... Tallahassee, Florida, near where I was born. That started this journey. And then by utter happenstance, a producer at the BPC named Jeremy Grange called me and said that he was interested in doing a BBC audio documentary about the Green Book. These were two separate events, but it seems as if fate was telling me that I had to pursue this. So I said yes that I would host this program for the BBC, and that led to this journey, which has been far longer and wider than I could ever have imagined
0: when I started. So, one of the places that you visited early on, and and this is it's fascinating to go to go through this as a a place as part of sort of a green book analysis is you went to Ferguson, Missouri. Why Why did you want to add that to this book? And, and how did you feel as sort of a, a travelogue journalist going through Ferguson all these years after the uprising, uh, after Michael Brown was killed?
1: When Jeremy Grange and I conceived the show in 2015, we wanted the road trip for the BBC documentary to be a journey through space from Tallahassee, Florida, to Ferguson, but also through time, from my lifetime growing up in the segregated South in a small town to contemporary events, Ferguson, Missouri. Now, I had been to St. Louis because I worked there teaching for financial services companies, but I had never been to Ferguson. So the day we arrived there, we were right across the street from the police station. And it was an eerie feeling. And as we talked to this young lady who was an educator there, she taught school, her name was Tiffany. She told us about driving through the various suburbs and how they would stop you if your car had a light out or if your license plate wasn't right. And it seemed like harassment, but also she talked about how she came to be aware of Michael Brown's killing. And it was through social media. And that to me, the way she described how it went around sort of like little fires starting and then one sparking another was
0: amazing. And it was eerie to be there really. As part of this effort, you collected stories from black travelers who had to rely on the green book to stay safe or had troubles on the road. And some of these stories were featured in a special you did for BBC radio back in 2018 want to play a clip and get your thoughts on the other side.
2: It was difficult. Uh, most times, uh, black families
1: traveled, you know, safe routes, and you were very cautious.
0: Cautious when, where you stop when, and how you present yourself.
1: You traveled during the day, you tried to get to where you were going before nightfall.
0: Because the least little thing could trigger violence.
2: The saying was, you know, Negroes, they use the N word, then were not supposed to be caught in those towns, you know, after sundown.
1: Now, my dad would tell us when we were driving up through North Mississippi, he's there, there's a little town called Duck Hill. And we
0: didn't go to those places. And he would always say, in Duck Hill, he said, they tied and feathered a black man. I got to ask you, what's one story that you heard? working on this Green Book project that really stuck out to you? One story where you were like, wow, this is amazing. Wow, this is terrifying. What's something that really stuck out?
1: When we were in Birmingham, we interviewed a community activist named T. Marie King. We met her at a bowling alley where she had taken a group of young people for an outing. And when she told us about her first visit to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is widely known as the lynching museum, she described going in there with a group and then looking up at the jars of sand that had been collected from lynching sites and seeing the name of her uncle. It was so surprising to her. Her relatives, of course, like many families who've experienced these types of traumas, didn't talk about it. She had heard something about it from her relatives, but they didn't talk about it. And when I asked her why did she think that was the case, she said because she believed they didn't want to pass on the trauma to the next generation, but also they had put it behind them and they wanted to move on. I have never forgotten that because repeatedly throughout the recording of the BBC program as well as my podcast... We heard stories about how older black people and families who had experienced really difficult situations would often be quiet about them because they did not want the future generation to lose the optimism and the motivation to continue to achieve. It was an
0: amazingly protective and loving thing to do. And also damaging, right? Because these people are swallowing trauma for generation after generation in an act of love, but something that can still sort of poison their soul. But she didn't
1: think it poisoned their soul. She said, and I think in the full interview that we did, she talked about how they had put it to rest. To use her term, they had found a place for it. So they didn't let it poison them, but they kept it quietly
0: inside. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the untold story of the Green Book with writer and journalist Alvin Hall. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned.
2: Hi. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in DC on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson today. We're talking about the history of the Green Book with writer Alvin Hall. You know, you've done work recently about the Hazards While Driving Black. And here in 2023, we are still hearing just a, a barrage of stories about Black folks being killed, walking in and out of stores, murdered by police, murdered while driving, et cetera, et cetera. The violence seems to be continuing, almost unabated. Do you think Black folks still need a green book? And what would that look like today if you were trying to make a green book for 2023?
1: Jason, I asked that question At the end of every interview I did on the road trip from Detroit to New Orleans, stopping in uh, Columbus, Cincinnati, Louisville, Nashville, Memphis, Montgomery, uh, Birmingham, and everyone said something similar. The older generation said, no, we don't need a green book. We will never go back to that at all. My Parents served in the army. They defended this country. They defended freedom. We pay taxes. We don't want to go back to the time when we need a green book. Younger people saw it in a different way. They said, well, when we travel, we'd like a place that would help us recognize the businesses, hotels, restaurants that will be open and accepting for us, that have our vibe, that's what they were looking for. So they see this as a tool of networking, finding the right places of helping Black businesses. I have come to believe, Jason, that a lot of the entrepreneurship around uh, the Green Book has evolved to become marketing efforts. So there's a lady that we met in Montgomery. Who has a green book based website, but she helps connect people visiting that area to black businesses. Even Forbes magazine has a website that lists various types
0: of businesses that are black owned that people can access and use. That's what's interesting because you know, in addition to your writing about this, you are a financial advisor and you write about personal finance and you know, the green book is not just a travel guide. It's sort of this celebration of entrepreneurship. Tell us a little bit more about that, because I'll be honest, you know, I would use a green book today. There have been hotels I've been to where I'm like, I will never go back there. And I don't think Yelp is going to be loud enough for me. So (laughs) what, what, how how do you see it as sort of this celebration of black entrepreneurship? One of the insights I had, while doing this project,
1: was to look at how the number of Black businesses changed over time. And clearly, over the duration of the Green Book, there was a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of focusing on providing the services that Black people needed and wanted. So that meant that the dollar circulated within the Black community many, many times before it left. I think that today people need to think about that because that's how we sustain ourselves. That's how we build the type of financial security and wherewithal that we can pass on to the next generation. But we also need to be strategic about this. Look at the types of businesses that are not the same as they were in the old days because people's needs are changing, but to be open to the possibility of embracing the new needs that travelers have. Look at yourself. What else do you want? You want a hotel that has great Wi-Fi. You want a hotel that can tell you where to go in the city to find certain things that you want to make your life better. So it's not just providing one thing, it's providing a multiplicity of services. And that, I think, is the takeaway for me from this entire project. If I were young, if I had a good business idea, I would bring together a group of Black people and come up with a business plan and try to bring something to the Black community that would make everybody want to use this service. And therefore, I would benefit and my customers would benefit.
0: We heard a bit earlier from the 2018 Green Book special you did for the BBC. You said that trying to get American backing for a bigger project around this history has been difficult. Why why were the British more open to this than, than American corporations and American media outlets?
1: I think a lot of it had to do with Jim Crow and segregation and how long it lasted in America. When I was first pitching this project, the people I primarily talked to just said, well, I don't know about this, I probably don't need to know about this, and the public doesn't need to know about this. And then the movie came out, and all of a sudden, that attitude changed. I think a lot of this is the lingering history of segregation and Jim Crow, and the fact that people do not want to look at the lasting effect in our society today.
0: Speaking of folks who don't want to admit the lasting effects or the current effects of racism, you are from the state of Florida which is currently run by Ron DeSantis. He has spent most of his now second term trying to eliminate Black history from public schools and colleges. And your goal is to try to get the Green Book research and stories into public schools. How do you feel about sort of government resistance to teaching students and kids the stories of their own state? I mean, we, we all know it's terrible, but why is it particularly problematic in places like Florida and Alabama for children of all colors to not know the actual travel history of those states? My
1: answer to that question is really in three parts. One, this is a repeat of history. It's almost like we're going through a new version of Reconstruction, where we've made this progress, and now we have DeSantis and other people like him, wanting to roll back history to a much more romanticized, antebellum version of America, the American dream for white people and ignoring black history. They almost don't want to hear stories about black entrepreneurship. They don't want to know how people made something out of nothing. Black people were able to build a parallel version of the American dream that as integration occurred and started to introduce Black people more into mainstream society, there was a competition there. They started to see that maybe the dream wasn't quite as they imagined it, and they don't want
0: to admit or be reminded of that. So in my lifetime, I've noticed a certain change in, say, black travel behavior. In the late 80s, early 90s, it was black folk, working class, middle class. It was like, you know, Sinbad summer jam on a boat or or going to Jamaica. Then it started moving to, you know, Cancun. Now I've seen over the last three or four years, folks who have some disposable income, it's all about going to Ghana. It's all about, you know, doing the right of return. I mean, I, my Instagram was full of people <laughs> in a crowd over, over this last Christmas break. What have you noticed in your work about the changes in Black travel, you know, since the 50s and 60s? How are Black people celebrating travel now in a different way than they did uh, when this project was a necessary part of our lives? Today,
1: Black people connect using the internet through common interests in travel. And therefore, you can put together groups of people of like interest. And you can explore Ghana. You can explore the Caribbean. You can take a trip to Senegal. You can do all these things in a group of people who have a common interest. And from that group, you find protection and security. Even when Americans drive on the roadways of the U.S. today, They have their cell phones with them. So there's a sense of protection there that at least you can record what's happening. You can call somebody if you need help without having to drive to a phone location. So all of that has added to it. But I think people are feeling more connections to people with similar interests. And they say, given this freedom, why don't we travel and see more of the world? not only to connect to Africa and Black people, but also people of color around the world and find places where our history is not only reflected in theirs, but also the warmth and empathy, the love of being alive is in that country. And you can share in that enthusiasm, you can share in that spirit, and you can share in that uplift that you find by educating yourself. I often think about a quote that Victor Hugo Green uh, referenced all the time, and this was a quote that he borrowed from Mark Twain, that traveling is the best antidote to prejudice or it helps people to overcome prejudice. That's sort of my variation of that quote. But I think it's very true. I think travel really helps people to understand the world much better, other cultures much better, and empathize with others. And I think with black people in this country, we can find nurture from other cultures, not just America.
0: Alvin Hall is the author of Driving the Green Book, a road trip through living history of black resistance. Thank you so much for joining me today on a word. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for word.
2: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.